Paul continues to write to the Romans by saying that the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated, and since you won't be speaking for a few minutes but listening, feel free to lower your mask. It is a little bit hot in here. For the last few weeks, we've been reading through Paul's letter to the church in Rome, focusing our attention during this time of reflection on Romans chapter 7 and subsequent words that Paul shares with that church and with us 2,000 years later here in Montreal. In Romans 7, we encounter the problem within us, that what ought to be is not what is. The good that we wish to do, we find ourselves not doing, and the evil that we do not wish to do, we find ourselves speaking and doing. Then, in Romans chapter 8, we encounter the solution. Who will liberate us from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in Christ, we have our identity. We know who we are. And if you know who you are, sons and daughters of God through our baptism into Christ who died for us on the cross, then we're ready to listen to God, not as some distant judge, but as our Father who desires that we live our lives amongst the people of this world as his children. But now we deal with a bigger question. The biggest question of all, a question of cosmic, literally, proportions. What about creation itself? What about the world beyond us and all of its creatures? Creation is often put forward as a definitive sign of God's existence. Look at the world around us. Look at the creatures in the world. Look at the distant stars, the Neowise comet, the planets and their rotation. Surely all of them point to the existence of a creator. And in fact, there's an old joke told about Isaac Newton receiving a visitor into his office. And on Newton's desk, supposedly, was this little miniature solar system. And as the visitor came into Isaac Newton's office and saw this beautiful work of art, all of the planets going around the sun, he asked Newton, who made this? And Newton said, oh, it just happened to be there. Now the man started laughing and said, Newton, you're a genius. You know full well that somebody had to have made that. To which, of course, Newton responded, isn't that amazing that this little trinket sitting here on my desk you know must have had a creator and yet you look out at the Earth and the planets and the solar system and the distant galaxies and say, no, that all happened by chance. Hence, many of the great hymns written by our Anglican and Calvinist brothers and sisters, some of which you know. Oh, Lord, my God, when I, in awesome wonder, consider all the works thy hand hath made, I see the stars. Earlier this morning, I heard the rolling thunder, thy power throughout the universe displayed. Then sings my soul, my Savior God, to thee, how great thou art. Or that other famous Anglican hymn, 
all things bright and beautiful, all creatures, great and small, all things wise and wonderful, the Lord God made them all. But creation is a two-edged sword, isn't it? Ever go out for a hike during black fly season? Bet you weren't singing all things bright and beautiful then, were you? You might well have been singing my daughter's favorite song that I introduced them to. And the black flies, the little black flies, always the black fly. No matter where you go, I'll die with a black fly picking my bones in North Ontario, Ohio. In North Ontario. Deb and I got to go out for a hike earlier this week, and the first sign we saw as we entered onto the trail was ticks. Look out for them. They could give you Lyme's disease. Poison ivy along the sides of the path that could leave you itching for hours and days and weeks left untreated. The masks that we're all having to wear here to protect from the virus that's floating around all around us. All of that led Monty Python to write their very own version of All Things Bright and Beautiful that some of you may know. All things dull and ugly, all creatures short and squat, all things rude and nasty, the Lord God made the lot. So the question confronting us this morning is this. How do we understand this double-edged sword? Our love of creation in all of its beauty and yet at the same time its brutishness and nastiness. A world that is full of beautiful clouds and fluffy bunnies and COVID-19. A world of incredible biodiversity and bioengineering on the part of our creator, but also cancer, Alzheimer's disease, ALS, and I could go on. Well, back in Genesis 1, we know that at the end of every single day of creation, God said that it was good. And there was no death. And there was no disease. Everything was exactly as it was meant to be by our God. Every animal, every plant and fish and bird had its place. It had its identity. And it lived together in harmony with humanity, who knew their role, Adam and Eve, as caretakers of the garden, this beautiful world that God created in all its perfection, all of which lasted for two chapters until Genesis chapter 3, which was our fall, because in Adam we have all been one, one huge rebellious man, as our other great Lutheran hymn says, and because of our fall, our loss overflowed to everything, to the fluffy bunnies, to the plants, to the bugs, to the snakes, to the oceans, to the mountaintops, to Mars, to Venus, to the extent of the solar system, to the galaxies, everything was impacted by our fall. And now nothing looks the way it's supposed to look. In the moment when God speaks to Adam after that fateful decision to transgress God's simple command, you can eat of anything in this garden but that one tree, 
The Lord said to him, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And all of a sudden, like that, there was death and cancer and rhinoviruses and coronaviruses and influenza viruses and bacteria and black flies and mosquitoes and venom in snakes and everything dull and ugly, short and squat. The lion no longer lays down with the lamb but lies in wait for the arrival of its dinner. And so in his letter to the Romans, Paul starts by saying both Jew and Greek are guilty. Jew because they have the law but didn't keep it, and Gentile because they have disobeyed their own consciences that tells them how they ought to behave, and yet they don't do it. And by Romans chapter 7, we discover that even the baptized Christian called a child of God through the blood of Jesus Christ on his cross struggles. The good that they wish to do, they do not do. And the evil they do not want to do, they do anyway. And at the beginning of chapter 8, Paul says, Christ Jesus is our only salvation. It is our adoption into God's family and baptism that changes everything. And now we are being raised by the Father as his own children. Having laid all of that out, having made the case for all these things, Paul can now turn our attention to creation itself. Because before the fall, creation was subject to man. We looked after creation. But after the fall, it remains subject to man, but a fallen man. One corrupted by sin. A man who logs too much who mines with abandon, who treats the earth as a possession, who treats animals as commodities and not signs of God's wonder and power. Read the psalmist. Creation was not made for us purely to enjoy, but to reflect the glory of God. And in our sin, we too often detract from God's glory and attack the very thing that should point out his power and wonder. And so Paul writes, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation subjected to futility, to uselessness. It isn't functioning the way it was supposed to. But in the hope that one day, through Christ Jesus, a restored humanity would once again look after a restored creation. And so creation is groaning together with us in the pains of childbirth. The problem with that illustration, of course, is that 50% of our congregations have no idea what that means. The other 50% gets it. That's why we all have to be together in understanding these things. I'm always amazed, by the way, that women who give birth to a child have a second child. To me, I think that's amazing. Like, you would do that again? And that is what Paul is trying to explain here, that at the moment, 
as you're going through it, as you see the suffering in the world and the cancer and the bugs and the venomous snakes, and yes, COVID-19, it is horrible. And it's not the world you want to live in, and it is painful. And yet the promise that Paul gives to us through Christ Jesus is that when delivery comes, the pain of the childbirth will be long gone. And it will all make sense. Our Easter celebrations now tend not towards crosses and empty tombs. You don't find a lot of empty tomb chocolates that you can buy in the store. But you do see a lot of bunnies and chickens and ducks and all sorts of little cute baby animals, right? And grass and flowers that you can buy at every street corner, even in Montreal. And maybe, just maybe, that's not all that wrong. Because buried in our unconscious, even in the pagan world, even those outside of Christ right now, there is this acknowledgement that Easter, when it is fulfilled, has to overflow to all things. That we will see the restoration of all things. That God, in first redeeming us through the blood of the cross and the empty tomb, and returning us to the place of rightful stewards, not kings and lords and queens and duchesses and dukes, but stewards of creation, we might eventually see all of creation itself restored. We lived in Texas for six years. And I remember clearly one of my first business trips ever as an engineer was also to Texas. And I had to drive with my boss, who was also my master of engineering supervisor from San Antonio to Austin on I-35. And as we were driving down the highway, Mike Van Aird, who was born in Canada but then raised in Belgium and then came back to Canada in his teen years for university, and myself, born and raised in Canada, kept looking out at the landscape around us. And in a lull in the conversation, Mike turned to me and said, you know, Charles, I know Texans keep thinking that this is just the best place on earth. I don't see it. In fact, I came across this joke where there was an Easter being driven by a rancher over a blistering and almost barren stretch of West Texas when a large, brightly colored bird scurried across the road in front of them. And the visitor asked what it was. That's a bird of paradise, said the rancher. There was a pause, and the Easterner said, pretty long way from home, isn't he? That's kind of the world that we live in. There are glimmers of paradise everywhere. Especially we as Christians can see through the veil of all of the nastiness to the beauty of the forests, of that first snowfall in the fall, of the changing of the leaves, of that blue jay when it comes to perch in your bird feeder, of the cat who just wants to be your friend on a cold winter night. We're not there yet. I know that because most of you are still have your masks on. We're not there yet. And while things right now may seem dull and ugly, God promises through Christ that they will be bright and beautiful again. We hope, Paul says, for what we do not yet see, the redemption of our bodies and the restoration of creation. 
which is why Jesus said at the end of Mark's gospel, not go out and tell everybody just that their sins are forgiven. Don't just go out and tell everybody that they have been atoned for at the cross. But he said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Amen. Now may the grace, mercy, and peace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ guard and keep you in the one true faith unto life everlasting. Amen.